If I were to ask you who your favorite character in your favorite movie was, would it be the hero? Would it be the villain? Who would it be? Have you ever noticed that when you're reading a book or watching a movie or, or a show, how characters move the story forward? I mean, you wouldn't have a story without characters. See, the essence of a story is there's a, there's a character who wants something and something gets in the way of that person getting what they want and they have to fight some kind of battle to, to get what they want. In any kind of story, it's really natural to pay attention to the main characters. Who is the hero? Who's the villain? And sometimes we find ourselves identifying with them in their journey, both their successes and their challenges. But you might not realize that if you, if this little secret I'm going to share with you, if you want to predict what's going to happen on down the line in a movie or a story, pay attention to the peripheral characters. They're often the ones that propel the, the story forward. They might be the unexpected good person. They might be the person who turns out to be the real villain. They might be the unexpected love interest. And often they're a key player when a plot twist is revealed. You know, sometimes we identify more with peripheral characters than we do with the main character. Sometimes the main character, we're like, I, I, don't, I can't imagine what it's like to be that person, but this, this sort of quiet person on the side, now I do identify with them. Well, today we're starting a brand new summer series, and I'm really excited about this because we're, we're going to look at various characters from the scriptures, and, and I'm so excited to journey together as a community this summer. When you think about Bible characters, most often, if you're like me, you probably think of Jesus or Paul or Peter or Moses or Joseph or Mary, and, and don't get me wrong, those are great characters to study. But usually we look at the, the Hall of Famers, the, the big names, if you will, and there's obviously a lot to learn from those folks, but, but this summer I wanted us to dive a bit deeper, to look at those that we might be tempted to overlook. So we're going to start a brand new series today called Under the Radar, Seeing God at Work Through Obscure Biblical Characters. And really, our hope in this series is to uh, learn about who God is and what God does, but also to look beyond that, to learn from the lives, to learn from the stories of some people that you and I might have overlooked, to see how we might learn from them, to see how Jesus might use their story in our lives to form us in his way with his heart. You know, it's easy when we read the scriptures to go to the key points, to look at the key highlights, but, but listen to Paul's words to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3. He says, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. I love Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of this in the message. He says, every part of scripture, all of it, is God-breathed and useful one way or another, showing us truth, exposing our rebellion, correcting our mistakes, training us to live God's way. And through the word, we are put together and shaped up for the tasks God has for us. So we're starting a conversation today and carrying it all through the summer, not only about characters, but also about how to approach the scriptures. And, and my hope is that together, as we, as we learn to see through new lens, we might allow the scriptures to teach us, to, to shape us, that the scriptures might for all of us become the living word of God that shapes us and shows us truth and reveals truth, reveals sin, reveals things in us that aren't pleasing to God, and, and then give God an opportunity to refine things in us and move us toward the wholeness of Christ. So today we're going to start by looking at how a famous character, somebody that probably everybody knows about, uh, treats, well, a lesser known character. So if you have your Bibles, turn to 2 Samuel, um, and we're going to be hanging out in 2 Samuel. If you've never read First and Second Samuel, you've got to read it. I encourage you this weekend, 
it, it might take you two, three hours to read through it. It's, it's narrative. That's the genre of the text. It reads like an action or a thriller movie. There's uh, or a war movie, or it's like a bunch of different genres all rolled into one, but you wouldn't believe what's in the contents of First and Second Samuel. If, if it were a movie, it would definitely be rated R. There are stories of political unrest and overthrows and adultery and assassinations and incest and war, and then there are these beautiful moments of people encountering God and living by faith. All of that just in a couple of books. You might not realize that the Old Testament was filled with such juicy stories. So in 1 Samuel, we see Saul become the first king of Israel. And we meet this young boy, David, who comes along, and you've probably heard the story. What does he do? He defeats a giant. And then we see David and Jonathan, Saul's son. They become really good friends, and we see that friendship blossom. We see nations at war. We see Saul struggling as a king. We see him losing favor with God. We see Saul becoming jealous of David and wanting to kill him. And we see this moment where David has this opportunity to kill Saul, and he doesn't take it. And then at the end of 1 Samuel, we see Saul and Jonathan being killed in a battle, and that creates a crisis. And we move into 2 Samuel. We see that David becomes the king of Judah, and the scriptures say that there was a battle or a war um, tension between the house of Saul and the house of David. And it doesn't tell us exactly how long, but it says that it lasted a long time. We also see that Saul's son Ishbosheth becomes the king of Israel. And we also see that his leadership starts to unravel. And then we come to this place in 2 Samuel chapter 4. And I'm going to invite you to turn there because we, we see this interesting interjection in 2 Samuel chapter 4. At the beginning, um, we see that Abner had died and, and Ishbosheth had these sons and some things are happening there. But in verse 4, probably even in your Bible, um, it's probably in parentheses. And here we see a minor peripheral character that we should pay close attention to in this story. This is where we first meet this person. 2 Samuel verse, chapter 4, verse 4, it says, Jonathan, son of Saul, had a son who was lame or crippled in both feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. His nurse picked him up and fled, but as she hurried to leave, she fell and became disabled. And then listen to his name. His name was what? Mephibosheth. See, a few chapters earlier, we see that Saul and Jonathan had died, and Saul had this son, Ishbosheth, that, that ascended to the throne, and he started to lose control. As a matter of fact, in chapter 4, a few verses after we meet Mephibosheth for the first time, uh, we see that he was murdered, which essentially snuffed out the lineage of King Saul, people who were qualified to be king. And I'll come back to that here in just a few minutes. But, but here we meet this five-year-old boy. Just imagine this precious five-year-old little boy, Mephibosheth. Imagine having to learn to spell your name in kindergarten if you were Mephibosheth. You know, one thing to understand when you're reading the scriptures is that names are powerful. They have incredible meaning. And I wonder if you've ever asked the question, what does my name mean? Have you ever looked up your name? I remember with our kids, both of our boys, Annette and I, we looked at the name dictionary and saw what the name was and, and what it meant. Names have meaning. In fact, mine says crowned laurel. I don't even fully understand what that is, other than it sounds really cool. It sounds somewhat close to royalty. In fact, my 17th great-grandfather was an advisor to King Henry VIII. His name was Sir Thomas More. So I feel like, you know, in a roundabout way, I have a close connection to royalty. So what about Mephibosheth? His name 
means he scatters shame. Now think about that. Would that sound fun? So he's got a long, weird name, and he has a weird meaning. So when news came uh, to the house of Saul and Jonathan that, that Saul and Jonathan had passed away, they'd been killed, his nurse feared for his life and decided to run with him to keep him safe, and, and somewhere along the way dropped him and it crippled him. Now, we don't know if he became a, a paraplegic. We don't know if he simply suffered some compound fractures that couldn't be repaired. We don't know. We do know that in that period of time in the ancient Near East that, that doctors would try to treat certain things. Splints were used for bones, but if it was too severe, he'd be labeled as untreatable. And if it was a spinal issue, that was also labeled untreatable. We don't know exactly what, what happened, but, but apparently whatever injury he had was considered incurable, and he lost the use of his legs. And so this bright-eyed five-year-old's future was altered significantly because his nurse dropped him on the ground. So we fast forward about 15 years, and we're going to pick up this story in 2 Samuel uh, 2, or 2 Samuel chapter 9. And I want us to get ready to start um, going through this. I want to pull out just a few observations, and then we're going to move toward communion together. Let's start in 2 Samuel 9, starting at verse 1. It says, David asked, is there anyone still left of the house of Saul? And I just want to pause there for a moment so that we can get the gravity of the situation here. See, in the ancient Near East, when a new king came to power, and he asked this question, is there anyone left in the lineage of the descendancy of the, of the previous king? It, it almost always had a heavy implication if the answer were yes. See, generally, we know that a lot of rulers from that era, they would come into power and they would round up descendants of the former king and they would kill them. They would um, say, I'm not going to allow an insurrection. I'm not going to set up myself to have them try to claim rights to the throne, their descendants. So it was sort of a way of ensuring that the old regime didn't rise up and try to take over. Well, imagine being Mephibosheth and knowing that Saul is your grandfather, that, that Jonathan is your father, and that David is the king, that someone else is the king, and you are the only living descendant. This little crippled boy who he grew up essentially probably fearing for his life. I mean, the deck was completely stacked against him. The last descendant of this former king. And I think if we're honest, we all have moments where we feel like we got the short end of the stick. And I would say it sure seems like with the name like Mephibosheth, with the length of it, with what it means, with being crippled, with being a descendant of this former king, that's pretty tough. I've felt that before too. Maybe you have. My father was killed in a car accident about five days before I was born. And so I never got to, to meet him. I have poor vision in my left eye. I have bad teeth. I have about 30% hearing loss in my right eye due to an accident that happened when I was about 14 years old. You wouldn't believe how much time I've spent in my life thinking about those facts that I got the short end of the stick, man. When I was a kid, in order to feel better about myself, I would make fun of fat, hairy, balding, middle-aged men. Now, when I look in the mirror, I'm kicking myself for not making fun of handsome, rich, ripped guys with a full head of perfect hair and with perfect teeth. Now, some of you, you'll get that joke later. So Mephibosheth, he got the short end of the stick. And he'd been off the grid, so to speak, for about 15 years or so. And then here comes King David, and he says, Is there anyone left in the house of Saul? 
And I can't imagine what it must have been like for Mephibosheth and to hear that the king is asking that question. You know, we, we sometimes could make the mistake of looking at David and going, well, he's just the little sweet shepherd boy. I mean, yeah, he rose up and he killed Goliath to save Israel and its army and all those sorts of things. But we can see that David was actually quite a warrior. Violence was actually a huge part of his story. In chapter 8, we see that he defeated the Philistines and the Moabites. And, and he actually made the Moabites lay down on the ground after he defeated them. And he measured the length of them. And every two people he would kill. So two out of three he killed. He captured tons of people, we see in 2 Samuel. He struck down thousands of people. And, and earlier in chapter 4, he had two men killed and had their hands and their feet chopped off. And their bodies hung up for all to see. So, so it's easy to imagine David continuing that pattern of violence and reducing the threat to his kingdom. But look again at, at what the rest of David's sort of question is. David asked, is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Well, that's unexpected. It's not, let me kill them. It's what? Let me show kindness. See, in 1 Samuel, Jonathan realized that David was going to become king, and, and he asked David to be kind to himself and to his, his children and to his children's children, and, and David agreed. They had a very special bond. They had a covenant together. See, David was powerful, but his love for Jonathan was powerful too. So here he is, King David, king of all of Israel, and he's using his power to keep his word to Jonathan and to express kindness. And I want you to think about this, that power filtered through love yields grace and mercy. Power filtered through love yields grace and mercy. Power unbridled corrupts. Power unbridled can go in some really dark places, but power filtered through love yields grace and mercy. And grace is essentially receiving what you don't deserve. It's getting something that you didn't deserve. And mercy is not receiving something that you do deserve. And culturally, David had every right to look at uh, Mephibosheth and to eliminate him, to kill him. Um, but his commitment to Jonathan, his love for Jonathan, his power filtered through love, meant that his behavior would be really different than expected and, and that he would show mercy and then he didn't kill Mephibosheth. And he would extend grace and we'll see in just a moment what he did there. The word for kindness in the Hebrew uh, is, is chesed. And it essentially means unfailing love. It, it has this note of loyal love, of, of devotion. And, and often carries with it this connotation of because of some prior relationship. So David was going to express love because of this prior relationship with Jonathan. Because he was loyal to his friend. In verse 2. Now, there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. His name means gazelle, by the way. Um, they summoned him to appear before David, and the king said, Are you Ziba? At your service, he replied. See, Ziba was one of Saul's servants, and I could see if I were Ziba being nervous when David came to the throne. When I was summoned to him, I would be nervous because I was, one, I was loyal at one point to Saul. So David goes on to ask him, the king asked, is there no one still alive from the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Did you catch the difference there, the, the language? I love how the language evolves here. He, he's moved on and he's saying, um, can I show God's kindness to someone? Not just kindness, God's kindness. And as we move on through this narrative, 
We're about to see God's kindness demonstrated. We're going to see God's power filtered through love, and it's beautiful. Verse 3, the king asked, is there no one still alive from the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Ziba answered the king, there's still a son of Jonathan. He is lame in both feet. Where is he? The king asked. Ziba answered, he is at the house of Machir, son of Amiel and Lodibar. So King David had him brought from Lodibar, from the house of Machir, son of Amiel. As an aside, I want to encourage you before we move on to, to consider as you read the scriptures to pay attention to the details. There's all kinds of details in this narrative. And as you're reading narrative in the text, pay attention to details, circle them, write them down. Ask yourself, what does this mean? And look it up. Because names matter and locations matter. And repetition, when you see something more than once, it matters. And, and details matter. And, and this is a great example of that because as we turn the corner and we see this interaction here, we know his name. We learned about that and what that means. But we also see that as, as Ziba was talking to David, he pointed out that he was lame in both feet. And I think one reason he did that was to show David he, he's not a threat to your kingdom. He's not the fierce warrior. He can't even walk. But that's an important detail. But then Ziba really lets the cat out of the bag. And if David's heart was sinister, he would, have, he would have had everything he needed to take action against the house of Saul. He could have, David could have went after Mephibosheth at that point, but he did not. But what we learn about this is that he was in the place of Lodibar. And Lodibar, uh, it's not the bar at the bottom of the hill. That's not what it is. Uh, Lodibar means no pasture. Imagine a non-fertile, a, a sterile place, not the best place to hang out. That was Lodibar. So Mephibosheth, he's this crippled person from a less than stellar area, living in obscurity. And that's so important to understand as we try to understand his frame of mind. In verse 6, when Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. And David said, Mephibosheth, at your service, he replied. So this crippled son of Jonathan comes to David and he, he humbles himself. He gets down on the ground and living up to his name. He's honoring David, likely feeling like dirt, probably feeling shame. And if I had to guess, probably fearing for his life. But in verse 7, we see just the beauty of this. We see God's kindness. We see God's love extended. In verse 7, it says, don't be afraid. David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will always eat at my table. I want you to pay attention to what happens here because David really does three important things as a demonstration of God's kindness and love. The first thing is that he soothes Mephibosheth's soul. He calms him by saying, don't be afraid. Imagine hearing those words from someone who has the power to kill you, who culturally probably should kill you, for wise political strategy probably should kill you. And imagine hearing that person kindly saying, don't be afraid. And imagine what that gift was to Mephibosheth's heart. He then goes on and he gives Mephibosheth all of Saul's land. So all the land that used to belong to Saul, he goes, here you go. Here's a land grant. I'm giving it all back to you. And then finally he promises a place at his table. So peace from the king, the land of his grandfather, an invitation to the king's table forever. 
There's this boy, Mephibosheth, the boy who got the short end of the stick. He was crippled, fearing that he was a wanted man. Now he's before the one who by all accounts should kill him. And yet David demonstrates the love of God in a significant way. You know, he, he could have simply said, hey, we're good. I want you to know I'm not going to try to kill you. Go in peace. But instead, he called him by name, Mephibosheth, and he, he lavished him with goodness. You know, growing up, for some reason, I was embarrassed when I got gifts. I, I don't know why. I didn't like to receive them. I felt like people were looking at me. They were, they were waiting for my response, trying to see what I would say or what I would do. And so when Annette and I got married, we went to her family Christmas, and they had this gathering where everybody sat around in a circle and passed out all the gifts. And then one by one, you would open your present. So as you opened it, everybody else in the circle is watching you. Some of you have heard me say this before. And I mean, my heart is like coming out of my chest because I'm embarrassed. I don't know what to do. And so I said to her, I don't know what to do. Everybody's looking at me. I don't even want to go. She said, just say, thank you. I like this. And they'll be satisfied with that and they'll move on. Here's the thing is I tried it. Someone gave me a present. People are answering or opening uh, uh, presents. It comes to me and I'm, I get my present and I'm opening that present and I feel the heat, man. Every eye is upon me. And I go, thank you. I like this. And people go, you're welcome. Cool. And they go to the next person. And I learned I don't have to be afraid of getting gifts. I don't fully know what caused that apprehension. I will say I have learned to receive gifts well. Hint, hint. But it's hard for some of us. When, when good things are lavished upon us, some of us have a narrative that says, I don't deserve this. And I want you to pay attention in verse 8 at Mephibosheth's response to David. He bowed down and said, what is your servant that you should notice a what? A dead dog like me. See, in the ancient Near East, dogs were frowned upon. They were nasty. They were despised. And a, a dead dog was worse than despised. It was the lowest of low. In fact, when David faced Goliath, people would use dead dog, would use dog as an insult. So what did Goliath say? Am I a dog that you would come at me with sticks? Apparently, Goliath didn't see his slingshot over his shoulder. So Goliath thought that David was going to try to battle him with sticks, insinuating that David was calling Goliath a dog. In the Old Testament, dogs were considered unclean and disgusting. And maybe in your house, your dogs, maybe that's what you'd say about them too. You know, saying you were a dog was a way of showing yourself. If you were to call yourself a dog, it was a way of showing that you viewed yourself as low, as unworthy, as the lowest of the low. And there was a time where David even said to Saul, um, he called himself a dog to show respect. And I wonder how you receive God's kindness. I think of Jesus calling his disciples. I think of Jesus demonstrating his kindness and his love in this moment where Peter says, go away from me, I'm a sinful man. I think of Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah is given this vision of the throne room of God, um, and, and he felt so unworthy. And listen, he said, woe is me, I am ruined because I'm a man of unclean lips. You know, maybe you grew up in a home that made you feel unworthy of God's love. Maybe you experienced pain in your life that made you feel like you didn't deserve God's love. Or maybe you've done things in your life to feel like, well, because of what I've done, I couldn't possibly be worthy of God's love. Maybe you've gotten so wrapped up in sin, some kind of sin going in a way different than the way that God intends, and you tell yourself, I'm not worthy of God's love. Remember, grace is receiving something 
you don't deserve. Romans tells us that the penalty for sin, that what we deserve for sin is death. The natural consequences of sin is death. And, and all too often we get stuck there. And I know so many people who follow Jesus that are stuck berating themselves about how bad they are. Some people, that's their narrative constantly. But, but Paul doesn't stop there. He goes on to say that the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. The gift of God, not what we deserve. The gift of God, the, the grace demonstrated at the cross, demonstrated um, through the scriptures, demonstrated every day in our lives. That's what God lavishes upon us. And I wonder how many people listening to this, when we start to experience the grace of God, the, the love of God, that we need to pause and stop that voice of shame, to stop the voice of the enemy who seeks to kill and destroy, and to receive the grace of God, his kindness expressed, his power filtered through love. And maybe we need to recognize that we're, we're created in the imago dei, the image of God and that he is constantly pulling us toward wholeness in Christ. So David offers peace, but, but also gave Mephibosheth his inheritance and this land, and he gave him a seat at his table every day, but he didn't stop there. He goes on, just keeps pouring it on. Verse 9, then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's steward, and said to him, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and to his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. See, David assigned Ziba and his 15 sons and his 20 servants to take care of that land, to farm it so that Mephibosheth would always be taken care of. And his kindness extended to Mephibosheth overcame his weaknesses. Verse 11. Then Ziba said to the king, your servant will do whatever my lord the king commands his servant to do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son named Micah. And all the members of Ziba's household were servants of Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table. He was lame in both feet. And so we see Ziba being challenged by the king, asked to do something, and he says, absolutely, I'll do this. And that ensured that Mephibosheth and his family would be taken care of forever. Can you imagine starting the day, holed up in your house, maybe feeling sorry for yourself, and being summoned by the king who had every right to put you to death? And leaving the land of no pasture, the desolate, barren place, and appearing before the king of the land and experiencing this radical act of grace and mercy, experiencing God's kindness, and ending the day a wealthy person with a personal invite to eat at the king's table every day of your life. I mean, here in a moment, we're going to move to a time of communion, approaching the Lord's table. And, and after that, Pastor Yvonne's going to come and lead us through a couple of practices to help us practice what we've heard today um, from the scriptures. But I want to leave you with three takeaways from this story, from Mephibosheth's story. And I want to ask you to sort of figure out where you are and how God might want to use that to form you in your life, to help you live in the way of Jesus, with the heart of Jesus. Three quick things. First, embrace the part of your story that you don't like and recognize that God can redeem it and use it for his good and yours. I've come to grips with losing my hair and having a bum eye and 
less than perfect year. I know that despite those things, God still uses me. God's blessed me. And maybe for some of us, we need to learn to embrace our scars and the parts of our story that we wish weren't there and allow God to bring healing, to embrace those scars, to, to allow him to use those as parts of your story in a powerful way. If that's you, would you consider doing that today? The second thing, we all need to embrace our seat at the table. You know, for those who feel shame, who feel unworthy, I want to challenge you to reconsider God's view of you. See, just as Jesus showed kindness to this woman caught in adultery, just as he talked to this Samaritan woman, just as he met the tax collector, had dinner with the tax collector and more, he's extending kingdom and kindness and love and table to you. He's inviting you to his table. And as we approach the communion table today, I want to encourage you to embrace your seat at that table as a son or daughter of the Most High King. And I want to ask you to remember that you have value, that you're loved, that you're wanted, that you're created in the image of God. And even though sin has marred that image, you're still created in the image of God. The image of God is still there. And that just as David extended kindness to Mephibosheth because of his relationship with Jonathan, that the God extends his love because of the shed blood of Jesus. He wants you at the table. You are bought with a price, and he wants nothing more than to be with you. And finally, extend God's kindness to others. Don't just receive it for yourself. You know, some need to stop withholding kindness and love to others. Maybe you've had relational issues and you've been rude to someone. You have pushed them away and need to lavish grace. Maybe you need to lavish grace and mercy upon others. Maybe you need to leverage your power for demonstrating God's love. And I want to invite you to get the elements of communion. And I want you to take them as Aaron sings this song that's based on this beautiful story. And I want you to think as those lyrics come about the price that was paid on your behalf. About the inheritance that you have as followers of Jesus. About the table that Jesus invites you to. About the seat at the table that you have. Even if it's hard for you to imagine, he would want to invite you to that table. Jesus said that, the bread was his body broken for us and to eat it in remembrance of him and, and that the wine was his blood shed for us and to drink it in remembrance of him. And as we get ready to go to the table, as we take those elements and as Aaron sings this song, would you allow yourself to embrace the fact that you have a seat at the table? Would you extend the kindness and the love of God to others? And would you embrace those parts of your story that might be a little bit messy and see that God might use them? Jesus, I'm so grateful that we can come to your table today, that, that, that for all time you modeled a way for us to remember who you are and whose we are. Thank you for inviting us to sit at the table. Thank you for using us despite our flaws, despite our past, despite our backgrounds. Thank you for this story of Mephibosheth and what we can learn from him and see that, Lord, it, might, it was hard at first for him to embrace, but he ultimately embraced your favor. He received your grace. He received your mercy. And help us to do the same. Help us to continue to take steps to live in your way with your heart. In the strong and powerful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Let's move into the Lord's table. Wounded and forsaken, I was shattered by the fall. Broken and forgotten, feeling lost and 
thank you so much, Larry, for sharing with us this beautiful story of Mephibosheth and David. What an amazing way to talk about the life of grace. And today we know that many of you are meeting in a house church or you've invited some friends to come over and watch the service together, or maybe you're still watching with a roommate or family members. We want to offer you a practice that you can do together within your community to continue to deepen our understanding of God's word and to continue to spread it to those that may not know who Jesus is yet. So our challenge today is to storytell. We would like for you to retell the story of David and Mephibosheth in your own language so that it not only resonates and deepens within your own heart and soul, it also prepares you to retell this story to someone that you're mentoring or to someone you may come in contact with during this week. Because this story of grace could be powerful and transform the way that you see yourself, the way that you interact with God this week, and the way that you interact with others who might feel like they're a Mephibosheth among us. So take this challenge and retell the story with those around you so that you can learn uh, to tell the stories of God, just like they've done for centuries in the way of Jesus. They've carried on these stories through oral traditions, and we want to do the same with this challenge and this practice today. So right after the service, after the announcements, uh, take some time to go through and take turns retelling this story, to deepen it in your heart, and to prepare to share it this week. I'm June Wiegert, Director of Women's Ministry at South Fellowship, and I'd like to thank all of you for watching. If this message was encouraging to you, we'd love your help to share the good news of Jesus digitally. Like or comment on this service on YouTube, or subscribe to our channel. This lets YouTube know that you think this content is important and should be shared. You can also support South Fellowship financially by donating at southfellowship.org give. We couldn't do what we do without your faithful giving. We're so grateful for your partnership. If you're watching this live, come join us now in our All Church Zoom room for some good conversation about the message we just heard. We'll post the link in the live chat. Everyone's welcome. Have a great week. Bye.